Hello everyone, welcome back to Spiritual Directors Talking About Stuff. Today we have on my friend Carl Forehand, who is a former pastor, a podcaster, and an award-winning author. His books include Apparent Faith, What Fatherhood Taught Me About the Father's Heart, and The Tea Shop. He's the creator of The Desert Sanctuary and Too Many Podcasters Podcasts. He's married to his wife, Laura, of 32 years and has one dog named Winston. And his three grown children are now beginning to multiply. <laughs> so thank you, Carl, for coming on with us tonight. Well, thank you. It's, a, it's an honor to be here. Now, I uh, met Carl through Facebook on um, some, some Facebook groups that we're a part of, um, primarily the Messy Spirituality um, Facebook group. And, uh, uh, but now that I'm not on Facebook, I kind of feel a little bit left left out but so i wanted to touch base with carl and kind of see what's going on with him because i know he's got a new book coming out soon but um and i'm sure we'll talk about that uh, uh eventually on this uh podcast carl thank you so much for being on this episode we are super pumped to have you and grateful um that you said yes to being on this podcast um i would love to hear a little bit more about who you are and where where you've been and how you got to um, kind of where you are today. Yeah, I was, um, I don't know if this matters. I was born in Oklahoma. <laughs> um, my wife and I met in, in, in Texas, I almost said Tulsa. I've been to Tulsa, but we met in Texas and we've been married 32 or 33 years. Um, be 33 years this year. Um, we have, Three children. One of them was in Taiwan, which is how we got to the tea shop. Um, and the two girls live here in the States. So we're starting to have grandchildren. We, um, I was a pastor for about 20 years, bivocational most of the time. Um, doing that, I was pretty successful at planning churches, um, mostly because of my need to be accepted that I'd learned how, and they taught me to be um, like whoever you're trying to reach and to fit into that community. And I was very good at that because I wanted acceptance. And I could probably have sessions with you guys for weeks at a time about that. Um, but that made me successful as a church planner. And so we could go into a small community and fit in and and that was attractive to them, you know, for a while till they didn't get their way. <laughs> but we uh, we had three pretty successful, not not full church plants, but kind of revitalizing something that was dying and and so on. But after about twenty years, just um, began to ask some questions. And as I started to ask questions, then. Um, it, it created some issues for us. And, and eventually we stepped down. How long have you been out of uh, being a pastor? Um, I suppose it's going on three years now. Just about, maybe just about three years since um, we stepped down. Um, not for any bad reasons, not because anything went terribly wrong or anything like that. Just we began to question things about the faith and just questions that, that needed answers. and. It just wasn't working, and we couldn't keep defending 
uh, and explaining things away, we had to go really, really kind of boiled down eventually that we just needed to do some work. Laura and I had been in that for 20 years and small town ministry is hard. Um, no matter what they say, there's some really good things about it, but also it's, there's, there's a lot of tough stuff in small town ministry. So yeah, it was about, I, I know that it was a little over a year ago when we, when we completely stopped going to church, but, um, in organized religion, but so yeah, it's been about three years since we stepped down. Can you talk to us about um, a little bit about kind of the things you were seeing or experiencing while you were a pastor that led you to make that ultimate um, exit from the pastorate? Yeah, I, I think it, you know, eventually I, when I wrote it down in the book, Apparent Faith, what I said is just that, that I, I wondered what if I'm wrong? And, and that I said from the pulpit, Maybe, maybe we should question things. You know, God's big enough to handle our questions and things like that. And so I began to ask those questions. And the way I framed it in the book, Parent Faith, was um, if God's pictured as a father, if we look at him that way, then, then he can't be a worse father than me. He can't be more retributive than I am. He can't be, have a worse temper than me. Um, you know, and some things like that. And so when I wrote that, that book, it, it, I just kept asking the questions. And sometimes when one thing comes unraveled, it's like a sweater and, and it all begins to kind of unravel. And it wasn't that I was depressed or sad or um, sliding down any kind of slippery slope or anything. There wasn't tons of evil in my life. You know, I wasn't terribly unhappy. Uh, I just had questions I wanted to get answers for. Um, and so those were, those were some of the things, you know, I wanted to look at, does God eternally torment people, you know, and, and things like that. Um, those are big questions. <laughs> and when you start, when you start to consider them, it is a bit traumatic because yeah, you know, you, some people feel like, well, I, I guess I'm just going to hell now because because I'm questioning my faith. But, you know, for me in the long run, it was one of the best things that happened in my life. Um, you used the word traumatic. Can you uh, talk to us a little bit about that? Trauma um, was something we didn't deal with um, inside the church. I felt like, I felt like Inside organized religion, we have a tendency, um, not that every place is like this and not that every situation is like this, but I think we have a tendency within organized religion to bypass. Um, and Robert Augustus Masters calls it spiritual bypassing. He uses that word. But it's just, and it's not that people don't care about each other inside a church and not that we don't, there's not good people and good pastors and all that kind of stuff. It's just that the system is not designed to have time for our, Sarah Bessie said, the church doesn't have time for our grief. The, the, you know, there's a lot invested in the Sunday morning show. There is um, 70% of the money goes to staff and buildings. And there's, there's just not a lot of time and money left over 
um, to minister to the flock. It's, it's, it begins to, even in our small town churches, it began to be about the organization and keeping that organization going. Um, we all had good intentions, but we couldn't, couldn't deal with what eventually happens is that trauma kind of gets reproduced that because I'm unhealthy and, and I, as a pastor, I think what was mentally unhealthy, um, I, I suppose even I, Jason Elam and I have talked about this a lot that we, we all even feel somewhat of regret that we might have passed our trauma onto other people uh, within the church. But um, so, you know, so coming out um, of the church and trying to heal, I would say um, Maggie, it was traumatic because it was messy. You know, there's nothing clean, easy, there weren't many handbooks to look at. And, um, and, and, and a lot of, you know, I don't want to tell Laura's story, but Laura would uh, define it as really traumatic coming out. You know, you just lose a lot of friends, you know, not because they hate you. <laughs> They're just going in a different direction, right? When I changed some of my beliefs and, and started thinking a little differently. They had other things to do. And I, I guess I can't fault them for that. But yeah, you lose a lot of friends. You are misunderstood sometimes and, and so on. So yeah. Does that answer that question? And Yeah, that was now I, I want to meet Laura and talk to her about her story as well. Um, the it's interesting because we hear a lot about people that that leave the church because you know they kind of went through this process of unraveling some things about their beliefs but we never really hear about it in a pastor is it more impactful on you and your soul health by being being a pastor and going through this process of unraveling rather than just you know someone in the church that is a member and leaves we hear a lot of stories about that I would say only that there's a lot more things to wrestle with, you know, and, and you you felt at one time at least like you were called by God, you know, to do this. And then my wife said to me, well, you can go back and, and get another church, but I'm not going to help you, <laughs> you know, Um so, but there, but there was that pressure. I, I attended uh, Brian Zahn's church for two years, perfectly good church. But then we just decided we can't, there's a lot of triggers and we need to get outside the church and, and, and get this thing settled. And so, but, you know, that was still in the back of my mind. Well, I need to get things back together. I need to start reconstructing and getting this back together so I can go be a pastor. You know, and, and a lot of times online, there's that pressure. You know, I should be doing something. Uh, and finally, I got to the point of where I wrote this last book called Being. And I'm finally kind of figuring out that I can just 
um, I have a little saying, I say, be where you are and be who you are. And I feel like I'm truly learning to do that now without feeling that obligation that I have to minister uh, to somebody all the time. So yeah, it, it makes, it is um, a bit more complicated, I think, for pastors. Um, that, but I don't want to speak for everybody because, you know, some church members might have complicated lives too. Um, does it take a lot of, um, of courage for a pastor to do that and to step out uh, in faith like you did, which was, you know, the faith step was leaving the pastorate, I guess. And, um, you know, how does that, how does that work as far as, you know, how much courage it takes for you guys to do that? I think so. It wasn't our total income. We had another, we both had other careers, but it, but it did read, you know, reduce our income a lot. Um, that livelihood, that built in support system that we always had, you know, even if there's some rascals in your church, there, there was still that built in support system. And we had that all through raising our kids and everything. So, so yeah, I, it's, it's a it's a daring move and yeah i think so now earlier you mentioned and you, you kind of gave the metaphor of, of pulling a thread on a sweater and it just kind of keeps going and going um and i think that is that's kind of the experience i had too or or the you know the first domino falling and then the rest of the dominoes falling so can you talk a little bit more about that progression what was it that first kind of set you down that pathway i noticed the church was um, didn't just disagree with the homosexual community, but they were almost um, aggressive towards them, at least the tradition that I was in. Um, I mean, that was one thing. I was struggling with my views of hell, eternal conscious torment, um, but also I was starting to have some doubts about penal substitutionary atonement. Um, and some things like that that I, I just um, wanted to clear up. Um, I mean, some uh, those are the things I started with, but then um, you know, I got into the national nationalism of the church, um, all of those those type of things, and I read a book by uh, Brian Zahn called "Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God." And I just really began to, you know, kind of switch um, my thinking on that. And then Brad Jerzak has a book called A More Christ-Like God. So I wanted to look at, you know, scripture through, through the lens of Christ instead of the other way around, instead of trying to interpret him through the scriptures. And, and so then instead of just having a flat lateral view of, Scripture um, started to look at it more as what I now believe is that it was a wrestling. It was people wrestling with their faith. It was people trying to understand. And I think we're a lot better off when we look at it that way um, because then we don't force things on it uh, that we shouldn't. And we look at it more... Uh, Brian Zahn calls it a, uh, the soil out of which our faith grew. Uh, Walter Brueggemann calls it a compost pile, which is a bit different interpret. I don't know if that's the same thing or not, but you know, it's just 
that all of those things, Christopher, I, you know, they, they didn't all come at once. And I, I've never been, you know, my first book won an award in theology, but I've never been like a theologian. I don't even want to get um, real clear. Um, this sounds bad. I don't want to get real clear theological answers. You know, I don't want to be the new answer man with a different set of answers, you know, in a different place I can draw a circle around. Um, and a lot of even some more famous um, theologians and so on say, well, you can't just keep deconstructing. You'll have nothing left. And that's actually my goal is not to have anything left except what's real and what's genuine and, and what's, what's in, and I'm finding that more um, inside myself, you know, it's deep down. And all I can tell you is it feels like peace. And that's what I keep striving towards and moving towards. Um, I don't want to create just a more orthodox faith or, a, you know, somebody else's from, from a previous generation. Um, I want to find something that's real. And I think I am. Um, I love that, that image of like just deconstructing until there's just nothing left. And that's, that's the goal because then you're left with, you know, that real, that true foundation that is, that is so true for you and where you are. And I, I'd love to know how far down that deconstruction trail do you think you have gone and uh, how much more do you think there is still left to deconstruct? I, I think what, you know, for me, um, what was left was not, what was not, what wasn't, I mean, what was not painful was not um, getting rid of the beliefs or changing the beliefs. Um, we found, like um, we kind of alluded to before, that we had work to do. Um, we'd always been doers. Um, and even in church, we said, don't be hearers of the word, be doers of the word. Um, and so very quickly, we wanted to move to be more where we could just be, where we could, instead of doing, being and becoming, right? But we found when we started to move towards that, that we had internal work to do. And a lot of that was shadow work and focusing and, and things you guys are probably familiar with. Um, but we had to do that intense work. Um, I started to write the being book about, um, there were chapters like being with my dog and being with nature, you know, and it all sounded good. And it was where I was headed is where I'm going. It's, um, sounds like good poetic stuff, right. To, to write. But after I wrote that, that had to become like the last part of the book because I had to go back and tell my story of a couple of years ago when, um, because I had ignored the shadow and the trauma, um, it just kind of all came out at once. And um, just, um, it was very traumatic. I thought um, my marriage might be over, I thought, and, and we really had to do some intense work um, through some uh, a program called Soul Journeys. Uh, it's actually a spiritual direction 
program that I had started in with some Benedictine sisters. Um, and they, they helped me work through some of that shadow stuff. My, my other spiritual director, Dr. Paul Fitzgerald, uh, helped us. But then since then, um, it's just been uh, kind of a nice, slow journey um, back to being and becoming. And um, uh, I, don't, I don't know how else. Some people ask me, what is your, what are your practices? And I said, my main practice is stillness. Is, is just be still. Um, that has meant so much to me uh, and helped me. I don't think I answered your question, but. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Uh, that was beautiful. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you are learning in the stillness? It's, I think it's, um, would be presence and authenticity to make a long story short, but my second book, I hate to keep talking about my books, but <clears throat> they kind of tell my story. The second one was called The Tea Shop, and that was when I when I kind of learned about presence and authenticity from the guy in the tea shop, who was probably a Buddhist. I don't even know, because we didn't talk about beliefs. He kind of, He was showing me his practices, his yoga practice, and serving me tofu, and you know, being a good host and loving me, things like that. Um, so, yeah, it's just, I mean, to make a long story short, it's, it's presence and authenticity. It's being, and, and the way I say it is being where you are as presence and being who you are as authenticity. And I have one of those things tattooed on my arm and get the other one someday when COVID is over, I hope. <laughs> Now, in the tea shop book, I recall you said um, after you had that evening at the tea shop, which was in Taiwan, am I right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you walked out and you, you looked at your wife, Laura, and said, what just happened? Yeah, exactly. And and you, it took you, I don't know how many months or maybe a year or more to process that. And tell me kind of what what was it that it did it touched in you that was so deeply moving that it took so long for you to work through and process that experience? My my friend says we have watchful dragons. I don't, and I don't know if I totally understand what those are, but but he he caught you know watchful dragons. If I understand it right, is is our defenses right? So when I go into Walmart. Um, if I can dodge the greeter, I really don't have to talk to anybody, which is kind of good for me since I'm an introvert, but I can go into Walmart and, and, and dodge all the people. And if, and I always know that I, I want to get in, get out, get a good deal. Those are my objectives and I have it all planned out, but the tea shop happens so fast. Um, our host, Tanya was we said, Laura said, we'd like to get some teapots for our daughter, something to, you know, commemorate the visit. And she said, we get in the car, let's go. And she whisked us in there. And then while we're still trying to decide what teapot to buy in the tea shop, the guy says, sit down. And then he starts telling us everything just happened really, really quickly to start off with. 
and our, our defenses didn't have time to go up. I didn't know how to get out of this or get around it or, um, you know, I didn't have a speech ready and a, you know, an exit plan and all those kind of things like we normally do. And I don't, I don't know exactly why we do that, but I think it's because we like to be in control. We like to know the outcome that's going to happen. But so, so first of all, that happened and, and all of a sudden we're, we don't have any other choice, but just to be there. And I remember I just had a thought to myself, like, what if, what if I would just be here? I looked over at Laura and she's of course intent and listening and all those kind of things. And my son is engaged. And I said, what if I would just be here? And so that was about all I contributed. That was my intention that that helped. Um, but it but it also helped that this guy was just one of the most genuine, authentic people I've ever met. And he he seriously communicated that he loved us with his eyes and he delighted in us. He was he was just having a great time being with us. And so we didn't talk about religion. We didn't try to convert each other or whatever, you know, or convince him. And I didn't tell him where I worked because there's a language barrier and everything else. So um, all of those things work together. I wouldn't know how to tell somebody else to recreate um, that experience. But I think when I was ready to have it, it was there. And and I did. I walked out of there and I said, what, what just happened? And it took six months before... I finally could sit down and kind of go through what happened that night. How do you think your picture of God changed, um, not only in, in this tea shop experience, but really since you have um, gone through your process of deconstruction, what, what about your picture and, and view of God has changed? I think the big thing from the tea shop was not um, what was God, that wasn't what changed. I think it was, where was God? And I remember one of the chapters, I think it's called, um, where is God? Um, because I, you would have trouble convincing me that um, God wasn't in that little man there that, that spoke to me and delighted in me and, um, you know, it's just almost like a dance. Um, so I want to say he danced with, you know, he danced with me. Um, and um, I have a hard, I would, you'd have a hard time convincing me that God wasn't in that man. And, and it just broadened my view of where God is. And so now when I, I start thinking about nature and the how things grow and the rhythm and the dance of the, of nature um it just keeps that view keeps expanding you know i love this image of you and this man dancing together i wonder if if this sits well with you the idea of you dancing with god i'd say i don't really have words for that for does you know does god dance through us or with us or in us or you know, it. All I know is that that we were two humans there, and I I felt like God was with us. I felt God was in Him, um, 
you know, and, I, and it's almost like, I, you know, I don't know how you feel about Rob Bell, but when I read Rob Bell's book, it's just like everything, every you know, everything's bigger than we thought. And it's, you know, and he does that throughout the whole book and it just blew me away and left me with nothing to say at the end, you know. Um, so it, it's one of those kind of thoughts that, um, you know that it's expanding, you know it's deeper than what you thought before. You knew this is something new, but I think I'm still unraveling and unpacking that. I guess you could say it was it's the divine in you is interacting with the divine in this tea shop owner. Yeah, that would be closer probably to what I think today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, it's, um, I know, uh, you know, I, I think I came out of the same, um, faith background that you did. And, and so it's, it has taken a, a progression, uh, of a metamorphosis in my faith to, to be able to admit that someone, you know, who is a Buddhist can actually have the divine in them. And, you know, it, it's, um, it's definitely a, a shift. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I experienced today, I heard, um, a, a pastor do a message and called people of other religions, called them cults. And, um, which of course was, you know, broke my heart into a million pieces to hear somebody think that, but what do you think that that is that, um, what that is with people that are afraid of seeing the same God that's that's in them in somebody of another religion? Well, I think uh, maybe that I've talked about it in all three of my books so far. We do have a couple other things we're working on, but I think it's, it has a lot to do with fear and control. And I think a lot of religion begins with fear. And because we're afraid, I mean, even subconsciously, when I would preach, I would give people a problem and then solve it for them. And I didn't even know I was doing that, I don't think. But I, I think there's it's just fear and control, you know. And the more sometimes that we can amp up that fear, then we have to have the solution. We have to prove that we can control whatever it is that we fear. So... I mean, that's my simplest answer. I, I think, you know, um, that fear works with religion really well, unfortunately. You know, I, I wish we could learn. Well, since we were talking about dancing, you know, I wish we could just learn to dance together, have conversations without having to convince each other. Um, there's There was a lot of, even even coming out of, what I came out of and reconstructing some of my beliefs, then I, I, I noticed I was still, I had that fear kind of in me that now I have to convince other people. And it took me a while to get kind of past that, that um, I can be and become um, and be with them, have conversations with them, but not have to control them in essence or control the situation. And I even think that there's this fear around this idea of deconstructing, 
your own faith, you know, within your own church community and church tradition that, that there's even a lot of uh, fear and, uh, you know, otherness on the, that could be on the other side of somebody deconstructing. And, and I think that there are so many people that are deconstructing their faith and are afraid to speak out and they don't know that, that they can, that it's safe <laughs> to yeah. deconstruct their faith. Yeah. You're, you're right. Uh, a part of it is otherizing as because when we other, can otherize people, we can dehumanize them. And that's a tragic thing of religion and um, this American experiment and uh, a lot of things that have gone wrong is because you so categorize them as something other and then you dehumanize them and then you can say or do pretty much whatever you want. Um, we, I hope the future is away from that, you know, and it's not them, it's us. <laughs> And we're all us. But I think that's part of it, too. It's a good point. I recently just started a new small group. And, you know, the first small group, we always kind of set expectations and ground rules. And we kind of talk about all the things. And um, I wouldn't say that I'm very shy about the fact that I have deconstructed my faith and that we're probably not going to all agree on things. And uh, a girl in our, in my small group said that it would just be really beautiful if we could all, you know, one, become curious about something that we don't understand or have not heard of or disagree with and ask questions instead of judge. And she used the phrase that we should dance in the differences. And I mm. thought that was very beautiful. And it was just a really cool image of how we can be us together instead of me and them. Yeah. And we do we've tried a couple of things with the contemplative groups and so on we really have to stress to religious people um to just listen and not try to fix them you know when you get uneasy you know because you know suffering or people's troubles make us uneasy and we want to fix them um we call it cross talking uh, i don't know what you call it but um we don't we don't necessarily even need you to comment on what they said just let them share you know and spiritual directors like you guys do well at that because you have that sound and rachel the other night called it uh, listening juice or something but it's when you say, mm, yeah you know and instead yeah. of feeling like i have to say something or fix the situation or eat you know put them at ease or whatever it's just just to listen to each other, and, and deep. I I'm a big fan of of spiritual directors and focusing. You know, I think focusing is going to be a big part of what comes out of the Being book, um, because I, I think it's one of the things that truly shifts people's trauma. Is just for them to feel what they feel, and to experience it, because then when when it's felt, it can change. And if it, if you keep trying not to feel it or bypassing it, it's it's going to remain and it's going to be um, troublesome to us, right? So anyway, 
that was a now weird. every time that I say, hmm, I'm going to imagine myself like mooing at, <laughs> at a directee. So, so thanks for that, Carl, for pointing that out. Why are you um, laughing? Stop laughing. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the impact that spiritual direction has had on your life and in this journey toward all the deconstruction and leaving your church and all of that. Yeah. And that's, that's real easy for me because, uh, first of all, I have a guy named Dr. Paul Fitzgerald. I talk, talk about him in all my books so far. Um, uh, he's been my friend for 20 years at least. And every time I've needed him, it came into my life and he's not a licensed, uh, spiritual director, but he's, He's been through all the stuff and he's a doctorate in shame and things like that. So I would consider him kind of as a spiritual director. And he certainly fulfilled those roles at times. Um, he was there when I you know, had the big deal a couple of years ago. Um, but then at the same time were the Benedictine sisters that run the Sojourners program. And I was in that spiritual direction program um, for about a year. And those were some of the wisest people I've ever met. I mean, just, and they just listened to you. That deep listening um, literally healed my trauma, shifted it, or whatever, whatever word you want to use with that. That um, Sister Marcia Ziska was, um, I, I met with her um, probably 10 to 12 times during that time. And especially during the the big issue time, um, she was there. But since then, um, I've had a couple of of people, you know, in different different ways connected with those two groups, um, focus with me. Um, and I, Laura, and I now focus with other people, uh, and we. <sighs> We have seen spirit, you know, at, at its heart, spiritual directing is deep listening. I, in my opinion, or kind of what we talked about the other night, and and uh, occasionally, a spiritual director will give me a little bit of advice, or they'll say try this on, or something like that. Um, but mostly, they just let me not, you know, let me do what I think inside I already know how to do. There's something in me is the word we use a lot. Uh, something in me feels this. Something in me is, you know, in taking the direction from our bodies and so on. So, yeah, and just um, the more people that I become associated with that have experienced it, either, you know, as a directee or a director, or, uh, I'm just more and more impressed and more and more convinced Um it's at least one of the biggest tools to move us forward. I, oh, I wanted to talk about the other night when Christopher was with us, I uh, wanted to talk more about COVID and what's going to come out of this and how much trauma and things and, and all of these people that have deconstructed their religion. And um, <laughs> it's, we just, it, it seems like maybe there's a, a road ahead of us and i would i would expect spiritual direction to play a big role in it just like it it has in my life 
Yeah. Um, now, what Carl is alluding to is um, the other night he gathered a group of spiritual directors um, and on his Desert Sanctuary podcast, and we just talked about spiritual direction and what the, what the ministry is, and um, we talked about shadow work and you know what kind of things we see coming down the pike with with this pandemic. Um, so we'll put a link to that in our show notes also, Carl. And, um, but in, you know, in response to COVID, I think you're so right that this has, this experience has had a profound impact on everyone who's, who is living through it, which of course is everyone. And so that is, I feel like it's kind of, you know, it's, it's breaking something loose and then a lot of people, um, and that something, you know, maybe finally dealing with trauma, years of trauma that they've never dealt with, or um, it could also be, you know, finding finding new ways to connect with God that they um, may, may have always thought about trying out. But now that the pandemic hit, they were forced mm-hmm. to, you know, move outside of the building and do mm-hmm. things in a different way. Yeah. So I really think that this uh, this pandemic is going to have a, a major effect, you know, on, on both the positive and the negative side. Mm-hmm. And I even think that the question that you brought up, Carl, about that it's not like who is God or what is God, but the question is, where is God? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people are asking that question right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been to several uh, like middle school and high school church services, you know, and they have just a few small groups come in the room or, or do it live or uh, on YouTube or whatever. And uh, they, uh, I feel like there's a theme there that mm-hmm. is, you know, God is, is present God wants to be with you. And, uh, um, and I think that that is something that that's a question that a lot of people have been asking over the last year plus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Now, I know you mentioned that, um, you and your wife are not going to, to church anywhere now, even before the pandemic. And I wonder if you could talk about, do you, do you, how do you see church changing after the pandemic? There's been a lot of churches that, you know, have, you know, have stopped meeting in, in person. And, and I wonder how those kind of, you know, people from those churches, will they, will they go back? Um, will it be totally a different landscape? What do you think? So we wrote down some of our thoughts while I was, I was doing a, a job somewhere else. And I wrote, I'd write something and then send it to Laura and she'd write her. And it ended up being like um, our assessment of the church. <laughs> and, but what was mixed in with that was um, our experience o- over 20 years, the pain and all, you know, was in the first part of the book. The second part that we wrote down was, um, so is it possible to thrive? Our, everything for us is called the desert, right? The desert sanctuary. Um, this thing we wrote down was called out into the desert. Is it possible to thrive there? You know, find, one of the chapters is called finding my voice in the desert. One's called finding um, community in the desert. I, I think, you know, a lot of people have been surprised that they could find community 
um, outside of the organization of the church. And if you can, then then you got to start asking those questions like, why do I need to go back there? Why do we need to spend that much money to pay somebody to organize my spiritual life? You know, it, you got to start asking some hard questions. And I think the, the pandemic has shown people like um, the Bean Book will be under an imprint with Alexander Shia. And he's been blown away by during the pandemic that they've been able to do small groups over Zoom, and he's surprised at how effective they were. You know, nothing's like a hug, right? For sure. Um, but we all have close friends where we can get hugs from, hopefully. I hope everybody does. And family. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to argue either any point, really, but um, it's. I, I think it's going to be different. You know? And I, I think especially the evangelical church, especially the white evangelical church in America has some work to do, some real serious work to do. Uh, of course, that's just my opinion, but but I, I think it's true. And we'll see. It's, it's what's really hard, though, still, is to have a good, deep conversation with somebody that is still inside of organized religion. They, they just, again, they don't have time to talk about it. You know, and it, it's going to deeply affect them to make any kind of change. And, and they'll risk everything um, to ask, even to ask questions sometimes. So I don't know. It's a good question, though, Christopher. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there's that, that share of churches who just plug right along as though the pandemic never existed. Mm-hmm. And so they'll just, you know, they'll just keep doing what they were doing. But, um, but I, th- I think you're right that that this pandemic will is causing a lot of people to reassess the paradigm. And so that that's mm-hmm. only a good thing in my mind. Someone made a point the other day, and I can't remember where it was, but they said, you know, you got to let people have their aha moments um, when they have them. You really can't force anybody to have an aha moment or logic them into it. It's it's just going to happen for them when it happens. Yeah, and and that's part of spiritual direction is, um, at least for me, is kind of wrestling through the fact that, um, like I I I like my aha moments and I have my aha moments and why can't everybody else, you know, mm-hmm. have the same aha moments? But it's just not their time. I just happened to go through it, you know, maybe all the deconstruction earlier than, than most people, you know, or, or later than a lot of people who knows. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, um, it's a different conversation when, um, you feel like you have to tiptoe around somebody because they haven't deconstructed their faith or let their faith unravel. Cause that can be scary. Um, and, when they have also found safety in a home and a community uh, within organized religion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Maybe you just need to dance with them, right? Yeah. <laughs> Somehow. <laughs> so what's um, coming up for you, Carl, um, related to 
spirituality overall, um, even your writing, what's coming up? Yeah, we, we what what I hope happens, uh, maybe in May, June, the, the pandemic hopefully starts to release a little bit. We'd really like to have, we tried it out in December, having what we called the being, uh, being journey. Um, so we did it online. We did some test groups and, and so on, but just taking that work that we did, that I did in being the being book and, and kind of developing that into like a retreat class group, if it's online, um, where people can actually do some focusing. Um, and then the being book is going to have a companion guide that's like a 30-day journey. So maybe to follow up with that. And so those are the kind of things we're really working on. But I was also listening to a black author um, talk about writing a thousand words a day and you can write a novel. And so when I was off work in the winter, I wrote a novel and I'm, I was, I'm really excited about that. It was so much fun. I, I want to write a novel every year now, but anyway um so yeah that's the kind of things we're doing we're experiencing grandkids now it's looking forward to that we're starting to make a few plans for retirement someday in several years but anyway. do you think you'll write a book called instead of a parent faith a grandparent faith and what oh, grandfatherhood talking about, <laughs> about that's great maybe <laughs> Maybe that's a good idea. <laughs> this told Laura yesterday. I said I, I want to write a novel every year because I can't imagine anything being as fun as that was. But I said I don't have any ideas right now for regular books about our life and stuff. And so maybe that's it. Good idea. Well, Carl, how can our listeners get in touch with you if they're interested in talking further? Yeah, everything uh, I think is pointed to in Carl forehand. It's Carl with a K and forehand like in tennis. So carlforehand.com. And that kind of points to everything else. The Desert Sanctuary has a Facebook group. Um, I write a blog on Patheos, but it's called The Desert Sanctuary, oddly enough. And so... But all of that's kind of pointed to through just carlforehand.com. It's exciting to me, though, that Laura is a lot more involved in what we're doing now. So the better days are ahead, I think. <laughs>